Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your real credit card number. Instead, you create virtual credit card numbers which are linked to your bank account that you can then use anywhere. And all the security benefits don't have to come with any inconvenient trade-offs. Privacy.com's mobile app and desktop browser extension make it incredibly easy to manage your wallet of virtual cards and allow you to autofill your virtual card numbers at the click of a button when you're shopping online. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the last 100 years of Venezuelan history to understand how they went from oil riches to ending up on the bad end of a good old-fashioned American-sponsored coup. Clips today come from The Real News, The Inquiry, Revolutionary Left Radio, The Majority Report, Ring of Fire Radio, This Is Hell, The Intercept, and Democracy Now!, Let's take a look at some of the clips from mainstream media uh, in describing what is going on today. This was once this prosperous uh, democracy, a jewel of Latin America 20 years ago before Chavez, who was then succeeded by Maduro, who was in his regime, in his administration. And it has been a disaster on all counts, uh, both democratically and certainly economically. New tonight, the socialist dictatorship in Venezuela is potentially less than 24 hours from ceasing to exist. And in a desperate last-minute scramble is blaming the people's discontent, not on their own economic failures, not on their own socialist policies, not on their own corruption, but on the United States. Hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans taking to the streets, demanding freedom. As police use rubber bullets and tear gas to drive protesters back. The crowds calling for the ouster of their authoritarian president, Nicolas Maduro. Venezuela has been hit by massive protests with its economy cratering. Millions have tried to leave. Maduro still has powerful supporters, including China and Russia. And for now, Jeff, his own military. A story we will keep watching for sure. All right, Paul, uh, you and I, we've lived through two of these coups that has taken place now in Venezuela. And this one isn't complete. And let's hope it's not going to uh, end up uh uh, it's not yet a coup. <laughs> exactly, coup. attempted coup. Um, give us a sense of what's wrong with that coverage we just saw. Well, I think you've got to divide this into two parts. Uh, the most important part right now is, are we, Americans, uh, people of the world, going to accept absolute violation of any kind of norm of international law Are we going to go back to the days of the United States picking who gets to govern in Latin America and many other countries of the world? Um, Trump has just taken this another step. You know, at the very least, since it was the Nuremberg trials after World War II that helped establish the concept that wars of aggression is the highest form of crime against humanity, an extension of that is interfering in the internal affairs of other countries. Now, of course, the United States violated this over and over again uh, since World War II. Vietnam War was, you know, illegal. But there was always a fig leaf 
of excuse that somehow you could hang this on international law and, and pretend it was. What Trump's doing now with Venezuela is not even a fig leaf of pretending there's a, a, a legal justification for this. And it's to, it's to take Latin America back to the worst of the old days, where the United States gets to put into power what becomes military dictatorships that serve these tiny oligarchies, and, and the vicious repression that took place in Latin America that led to the deaths of tens of thousands of people who fought for basic democratic rights. So the, the violation of international law, the, the uh, supporting of this coup in the most naked, aggressive form from the Trump administration, one has to recognize the economic model that starts with Chavez and, Ch and then Maduro. And Maduro gets handed a pretty bad hand of cards by Chavez. Um, there's some real problems in the Venezuelan economy. And we who denounce this interference in Venezuelan affairs should not also be quiet about what the mistakes that were made by the uh, Bolivarian Revolution, what was, you know, what went wrong in the economy, um, and, and the fact that such horrible problems. You can't blame it all on U.S. sanctions. This, this economic model, economic plan wasn't working. And uh, one needs to dissect that. But you, and it's not all the Americans' fault. But why was there a Chavez? If life was so wonderful before Chavez, if this was the jewel of Latin America, why the hell did people vote for Chavez? The, the period they're talking about, where, in fact, at, there's a point, I, I, Greg can correct me on this, I think it's maybe in the, in the late 1950s. Yeah, Venezuelan standard of living was almost the same as West Germany's. But not pre-Chavez, when the oil price dumped in the 1980s and inflation went to 100% in Venezuela before Chavez. And the great inequality gap existed, but it far widened in poverty and, and the gro gro grand scale of poverty in the country increased. That's why people vote for Chavez, because there was a mass movement in 1989, right? There's a, one of the first large demonstrations against the uh, uh, IMF and these policies people call neoliberal of uh, hypercapitalism, getting Latin American countries into super debt and then pillaging, plundering the countries and debt repayments and trying to transform the economies so that all they do is wind up paying, sending money up to American banks. Um, that's what gave rise to Chavez, not some wonderful la-la Venezuela. Our final expert witness is historian Miguel Tinkersalas, the son of oil workers. He grew up in one of Venezuela's oil camps. It was the old company town uh, in which you had a school, you had housing, you had education, and, and it became a social laboratory for the oil companies, modeling what Venezuela could be. He recalls growing up in Venezuela during its 1970s golden era when... You had access to the Concord. You had uh, access to Miami on weekends. Many in the middle class were buying property abroad, were traveling. It was a very sophisticated middle class. 
In his view, Venezuela presented a veneer of prosperity, but in reality, it was only for the few. There were two Venezuelas, one that benefited directly from oil profits and one that lived in the shadows of oil, but never really saw fully the benefits from the oil economy. Those largely hidden, long-standing problems are now visible. Miguel Tinkersala says the seeds of the current crisis were sown a century ago. After Venezuela's oil industry took off in the 1920s, the country's dependence on one commodity was quickly apparent. Venezuela, since 1935, was actually a net importer of food, so that you already had the economic structures in Venezuela already being deformed by the dependence on oil production. A reliance on oil meant importing instead of producing food and other goods. Venezuela's government had considered diversifying the economy. In the early 1940s, as the country was transitioning from a set of military governments、um, to democracy, many people proposed to use oil profits to produce an alternative form of development to actually focus on agriculture. But he says such economic models for Venezuela were rejected because politicians portrayed oil as synonymous with development. Oil and modernity, oil and progress, oil and democracy. He says that set Venezuela on a disastrous path. In many ways, the country turns its back on its own history, on its own previous agricultural development,、um, on its own coffee production, cacao production, and other agricultural products that it had during the early part of the, of the 20th century, and begins increasingly to, wholly to rely upon oil. Miguel Tinkersalas doesn't let the politicians who've led the country off the hook, although he does give some credence to President Maduro's claim that Venezuela is the victim of a Washington plot. I think there's no doubt that Venezuela has been signal for regime change,、um, first by the Bush administration, then by the Obama administration. But I don't think that the current crisis can only be put at the footsteps of the North American government or any other government. Sharing the oil riches with the poor through housing, food, and health programs improved the quality of life in Venezuela and reduced inequality. But Miguel Tinkersala says it was unsustainable. Those were possible as long as oil profits remained high, but as soon as they began to decline, that became impossible to maintain, and that put a further strain on the economy. Why has every government fallen into the same trap of oil reliance? Because it's the easiest thing to do. I mean, when you have a dependence on oil, to try to sell to the population that you're now going to diversify the economy, that they cannot have the expectations of life that they are used to,、um, and that they're going to have to sacrifice, no politician will do that. The curse of oil was recognized by a Venezuelan oil minister as early as 1976. He described oil as the excrement of the devil because he talked about the near total dependence. We have oil, but we import everything else. So, how did Venezuela go from so rich to so poor? If I had to summarize it, it, it lies in oil. All our expert witnesses agree that generation after generation of politicians have failed to learn the lessons about how to use Venezuela's oil wealth.
It can be used to diversify the economy into new industries. It can be saved in a fund to help soften the ups and downs of the market. But successive Venezuelan governments have instead deepened the country's reliance on oil. Um, I really like to cover kind of a little lead up of what's happened in the past few decades to lead up to this situation by informing the audience as to what the Bolivarian Revolution is,、uh, what role Hugo Chavez played in it, and what its achievements have been since its inception. Sure. So, I mean, Venezuela, you know, to situate it on a kind of world historical level, you could think about Venezuela as the beginning of,、uh, you know, of, of the global pushback against neoliberalism. Um, even prior to you know our own experience of neoliberalism in the global core、um, in Europe and in the United States, neoliberalism was being pressed and imposed onto Latin Americans,、uh, you know,、uh, by gunpoint, starting in particular with the Chilean coup in 1973,、um, but then spreading across the continent. The 80s, 80s and 90s really see the imposition of, of neoliberal austerity and structural adjustment on and across Latin America as a kind of laboratory for what would later become global transformations and. I think the real、uh, sort of shot across the bow of this neoliberal offensive comes precisely in Venezuela in 1989, in this mass rebellion against neoliberal structural adjustment known as the Caracaso, and that's the beginning of what's happening in Venezuela today. It was before Chavez was publicly known.、Um, it was a mass riot and rebellion in the streets by the poorest of the poor、um, that really set into motion everything that has come since, and really provoked a chain reaction. That included then three years later Chavez attempting a coup to overthrow、uh, the、uh, you know the you know the two-party elite government that existed in Venezuela,、um, and then later his election in 1998. So this is a process that involved Chavez very heavily as a focal point for revolutionary sentiments, but also involved mass rebellion on the grassroots level, and this has really never stopped.、Um, you know the the development and the deepening of this radical grassroots. Um, you know, pressure and momentum and energy has been essential to the radicalization of the Bolivarian process ever since. In the context of what they call the Pink Tide, could you give a little geographical context of what was happening in other Latin American countries during and since the the Bolivarian Revolution? Sure.、Um, you know, as I said, Venezuela was really kind of the spearhead of a lot of this. Chavez came to power in, in an election in 1998. He came into power in 1999. We're talking about the transformation of the constitution and the radicalization of society as a whole.、Um, but then you also saw, of course, the emergence of what you could see as the more leftist variants of this pink tide in Bolivia, in Ecuador,、um, and. What's interesting is that all these really came on the heels of popular rebellions, and so I actually think it's pretty clear that where you had mass popular rebellions in the streets that were ousting governments and that were taking down, you know, institutions, you also had the emergence of more radical, more left-wing governments that then, of course, were joined by more moderate governments in Chile and Brazil, in Argentina,、um, and this led to、uh, this period of time in which the left managed to. Develop, you know, a certain degree of power in Latin America, gain some autonomy in the in the region as a whole, was able to act more independently, independently of the World Bank, the IMF, and foreign,、uh, you know, and foreign powers. What have some of the achievements been since Hugo Chavez took power? What have been some of the achievements made for poor and working people in Venezuela? 
Um, I mean, you're talking about, of course, first and foremost, uh, the dramatic reduction in poverty, the emergence of what were called, you know, the, the sort of educational missions, social missions, which provided a social welfare, uh, you know, uh, you know, structure in Venezuela for the poorest of the poor, not only uh, in terms of goods, you know, you know, first of all, income, but also food and other items, but also education. You had an, a literacy program that basically eliminated illiteracy. And that program was then extended upward to the university level. So people had university level education, um, subsidized food products, access to these kind of things, and access to a whole range of other social welfare products that basically at that time eliminated homelessness, eliminated a whole range of of difficulties that existed in Venezuela society and, you know, and brought Venezuela from being one of the most unequal Latin American societies to being uh, one of the most equal over the period of a short number of years. You know, if ever there was a time to be able to hold multiple thoughts in your head at once, it would be now, obviously, right? So, of course, there are failings of uh, Nicolas Maduro and of this present government. And there's also massive accomplishments of particularly Hugo Chavez, which we have no discussion of in the United States, right? And obviously, during an attempted coup, the primary responsibility of those of us in the United States is to actively and vehemently oppose a coup. And so all of that being said, in terms of like the social formation around Maduro, you talked about obviously the popular surge that protected Chavez from the Bush 2002 coup. I've heard and, you know, I, I'm talking to you because you're a source I trust, right? There's a lot of sources I, I don't even know enough to trust or not trust, frankly. But one of the things I've heard is that unlike in previous efforts, there are poorer parts of Caracas, as an example, places where the traditional social base of this poli- of, of Bolivarian politics have rallied before to defend this project from foreign intervention and domestic oligarchs, but that there's actually like some of those uh, demographics are rising up as well because things have been so bad. And I guess my qu- I have a two part question. One, I mean, is that true? And secondly. What is the combination here of internal failings versus just like the relentless U.S. pressure of sanctions and and investment in in uh, opposition uh, as well? Like, what's the kind of fusion of innate failings versus ongoing relentless U.S. interference? This is really a type of what you would call low intensity warfare or asymmetric warfare. It's been going on for a long time. It, it does that does not discount the role that the government itself has played in their own dysfunctional policies, and they're you know allowing corruption to basically become a a, a, a malignant uh, force within the government. But at the same time, you know the there's no question. I mean, the particularly the. U.S. through their different funding agencies like USAID or National Endowment for Democracy, even just directly through State Department, think tanks like Freedom House, others that are used as fronts to channel funds to, you know, and even in some cases creating NGOs uh, that work to undermine governments that aren't favorable to U.S. agenda, that this over time is a way uh, it, it just tires out 
the people. It, you know, it, it becomes and it, it penetrates so deeply into civil society that it, it's unrecognizable as being something imposed from external, you know, interests. So, I mean, that is that does play a huge role in what's gone on in the poorer neighborhoods. But at the same time, I mean, the primary reason that, you know, a majority of lower income areas supported Chavez in the first place was because of his policies. I mean, yeah, he was a charismatic guy. He cared about people. But, you know, it, it, they wouldn't have supported him for so long and put their lives on the line to to defend him for so many years in the face of so much uh, destabilization and, you know, different uh, attempted coups and, and aggressions against them if it wasn't for the fact that his policies were servicing their basic needs. People were, were the quality of life improved dramatically under Chavez. So all of that now has been rolled back under Maduro in part because of sanctions and economic warfare from private enterprises and abroad. But I, I mean, I have to say, no, I mean, I know what's going on there. You know, there's a lot of corruption. They've been yeah. embezzling a lot of money out and it's mismanagement, you know, so there, there are bad people in place in, in, in charge of a lot of the finances of the country and they've been stealing money. I mean, that just straight out. So, you know, that's also a combination of what's been going on. And so, yes, this, the support from the traditional grassroots community um, bases in Venezuela for the government has dramatically eroded over the past couple of years because of the economic crisis, primarily because of that, because in general, people don't care as much if their president has authoritarian tendencies or not, so long as they can eat and earn a decent wage and, you know, pay their for all their expenses. I mean, it comes down to that. Most people are not highly politicized and aren't thinking about that on an everyday basis. They're thinking about how much money do they have and can they afford everything that they need in their lives? So right. once that start, the tables start to turn on that, you know, you think with your stomach, that was always something said in Venezuela before Chavez and afterward is people think first with their stomach. If you can't eat, you know, you're, you're going to get angry. And so you're going to blame who's in charge, who's preventing that, you know, you from being able to meet your basic needs. And in this case it is Maduro. So I mean, I think that that is absolutely true. And I mean, I've been uh, talking nonstop to people on the ground in, in different areas around the country. And last night was a night full of protests, bullets, you know, people got killed. There was a lot of commotion in, in, in uh, all over Caracas, particularly, and uh, in, in the poorer neighborhoods as well, in popular sectors. And then at the same time, Maduro people call and he himself called for his supporters to rally around the right. presidential palace and protect him nobody was out there at midnight it was empty wow. so that would never have happened during chavez people would right. have slept out there if they needed to so i think that's a huge yeah. thing because we're not seeing kind of support for maduro Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. In 2013, Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. Traditionally, there have been two options, outdated at-home hair color or the time and expense of a salon. Dissatisfied with the status quo, Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. 
experience beautiful multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy, delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of Love listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT. Assess for us the uh, Maduro um, uh, presidency, uh, how it has, what its trajectory has been. And, and, and we should also state, obviously, that um, the problems that has happened with the Venezuelan economy have been exacerbated by um, the United States and others' policy uh, towards their participation in, in world markets. But, but fill yeah. us in on that. Okay, well, uh, we start with with Nicolas Maduro, you know, a, a long time Chavista, very loyal to his boss, uh, was anointed as Chavez's successor, uh, it, effectively, when Chavez departed for the last time to Cuba for what turned out to be his ultimate cancer treatment before he died early in 2013. Maduro took charge one election shortly after that by a narrow margin and unfortunately for him uh, presided over uh, the beginning of uh, Venezuela's economic decline which was obviously produced by the falling oil prices at the time but I think this is crucial we have to say uh, Maduro and his government have run the Venezuelan economy into into the ground I mean their economic policy has been a disaster for many reasons but I think one of the reasons is that Maduro had to keep this 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 the, the the show on the road, the Chavista show, something which had been totally dominated by this hugely charismatic, you know, figure, which was Hugo Chavez. Maduro is not as charismatic, and the way he went about keeping himself in power and holding uh, the alliance of Chavistas together was fundamentally through corruption and paying off different parts of the military of the political allies and and this is uh, this has been the 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 the, the, the story of the last uh, six years if you like we have seen venezuela's economy crunch decline by 40 to 50 percent uh we've seen terrible hyperinflation uh, in the last uh, two years, the direct result of, of, of appalling economic mismanagement. And we've seen at the same time politically the opposition, which had really been buried under Hugo Chavez, who was, you know, just a serial election victor, enormously popular in the country. The opposition has come back, restored itself, cleaned itself up, won elections to the National Assembly in 2015. And then as it started, you know, preparing itself to, you know, finally dislodge Chavismo from power, that is when the political repression uh, began and the government, alas, became ever more authoritarian, resulting in the elections, the very disputed elections of May last year. OK, and, and just give us a sense. I mean, the um, the the economic mismanagement, they're mismanaging, obviously, mm. the uh, fall of, of of global oil prices, mm. which mm. Um, had propped up uh, the economy significantly. Um mm. 
give us a, uh, if you could, a brief survey course, though, on <laughs> the, uh, 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 my understanding is that there were implications to, uh, lines of credit, uh, that were denied the Venezuelan, uh, government mm-hmm. and caused deeper corruption because of what was, uh, what could be done at that point with playing off of different currencies, particularly, uh, uh, it, you know, the, as related to the U.S. dollar. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put this straight. And I mean, I've been working on Venezuela for a long time and I have had great sympathy with Hugo Chavez in his time and spoken to his ministers, visited Chavista projects. Uh, you know, I have written about this in the past. So I want to say absolutely clear, I'm not coming at it with an ideological bias or a prejudice. I'm going to say it as it was. Those There are two sorts of sanctions which the United States has brought against Venezuela. Targeted sanctions against government leaders, asset freezes, travel bans, you know, the usual, which now cover a lot of government leaders, but doesn't really have economic effects on the Venezuelan people. And financial sanctions introduced in August 2017. Now, those a lot of blame has been put on those from certain sectors and it's true that they did restrict credit lines to venezuelan companies and for oil purchases so it rather you know reduced the room uh, for maneuver and you will speak to senior u.s government officials and they will admit there's been over compliance with those sanctions so that you know any Dealing with a Venezuelan company which involves a U.S. bank or a financial transaction of some sort comes in for particular scrutiny. And that wasn't the initial intention of those sanctions. But I want to be absolutely clear. The Venezuelan economic disaster had gestated well before those sanctions were redu- were, uh, were introduced. The emigration was already beginning. The inflation was already rocketing. The imports of food and medicine on which people depended were already collapsing. All of that was well underway. If you look at the poverty rates in Venezuela, the the, the, the increase in the number of poor people from 2013, 14 till 17 was absolutely huge before the sanctions. There's no doubt the sanctions have had an effect, a chilling effect, and they particularly hit the oil industry, which has collapsed in the last year or so. But I think if you are looking for a general understanding of where the Venezuelan economy went wrong, you've just got to look at price controls, uh, distortions, expropriations, and a very lamentable um, you know, uh, manipulation of the currency, which was effectively used, uh, gay, used by people close to the regime to make vast amounts of illicit money. One of the things you write is that the government continues to appeal to businesses to invest and make ever more concessions, uh, lifting price controls, creating special economic zones, opening up vast amounts of land for mineral exploitation, offering cheap loans, but to no avail. Why aren't concessions to the private sector reaping benefits? And how upset are those who are still loyal to the Bolivarian revolution at these pro-business concessions being made by the Maduro government? 
the concessions continue, and immediately after the elections, uh, Maduro made a big speech uh, outlining his his the lines of his his new government. And he specifically said, I make an appeal to the private employers, uh, to business uh, interests, uh, national and international, to discuss and enter into a dialogue. But in reality, what, what, the, uh, what the capitalists want is a free for all. Uh, they, they want the lifting of all subsidies. They want the repeal of the trade union and labor legislation that defends workers' rights. So any concessions that Maduro makes are not enough for the capitalists. But at the same time, these concessions undermine the support that the government has amongst working people, because working people uh, feel that, look, they have re-elected this government. And this government promised to deal with the economic uh, problems and to deal with the economic mafias. And now, instead of that, what the government is doing is uh, appealing to these same mafias for negotiations and dialogue. And, and this is extremely damaging for the popular base of support for the for the government. In my opinion, there are only two ways out of this crisis. One, which is in benefit of the in, in the benefit of capitalists, which is, as I was saying, a brutal adjustment program, massive cuts in social spending, perhaps the dollarization of the economy, and and so on, mass layoffs, uh, political repression. And that's what the opposition wants. And the other way is the expropriation of the oligarchy. The oligarchy have been sabotaging the economy for 20 years. They participated in the coup. They organized the coup in 2002. There's plenty of reasons for for taking away the economic levers of power from them and putting them uh, to work for the interest of the majority of the population. And and this will not be an immediate solution, but will put the basis for starting to solve the economic uh, problem. Now, Maduro, by choosing to follow a middle-of-the-road way, by making by, by talking to working people, but at the same time making concessions to the capitalists, is in reality preparing disaster, is preparing uh, the coming back of the opposition into power. Uh, and that will be a disaster, not only for working people in Venezuela, but throughout the continent. Uh, the right wing will feel uh, emboldened. And they will go on the on the offensive. That's why we need to defend the Bolivarian Revolution, in in my opinion, from foreign intervention, from imperialist meddling. But at the same time, we need to be clear, we need to be honest, and we need to say that the policies of the government are not uh, useful, they're not effective in fighting against uh, imperialism and against the ruling class. In fact, they are preparing the ground for them to come to come back to power. This show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you who've signed up to support the show on Patreon. Each hour-long episode we produce is the result of literally dozens of hours of work. Usually about 30 hours of source material has to be listened to, sifted, curated. I go through multiple rounds of editing and refining of the content before almost all of it is discarded and the final selection is made to produce the show. In short, a lot of effort goes into the production of the show because we care deeply about not just providing good ideas and getting them out into the world, but in finding the best versions 
of the best ideas we possibly can. Due to this high workload, we end up with a relatively low turnout of the show. You know, we only put out two episodes a week, which means we have less than half the opportunity to bring in ad revenue than if we were doing a live-to-tape, five-days-a-week show. And that's why direct support is so important. So if you get value out of the show and you want to support the work that makes it possible, the most important thing you can do is become a member on Patreon. Members get to listen to an ad-free version of the show, participate each week in a poll that helps decide which topics we're going to cover, and they receive bonus clips and commentary in separate members-only episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestofleft. And thanks so much for your support. Hola, I'm Mike Pence. On behalf of the American people, we say to all the good people of Venezuela, estamos con ustedes. Right now, the Trump administration is openly engaging in a blatant effort to overthrow the government of Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela. It's a campaign aimed at regime change, and it's being publicly promoted as an opportunity to steal Venezuelan oil for the benefit of U.S. corporations. They're not even pretending. Here's National Security Advisor John Bolton speaking on Fox News. Venezuela is one of the three countries I call the Troika of tyranny. It'll make a big difference to the United States economically if we could have American oil companies really invest in and and produce the oil uh, capabilities in uh, Venezuela. But this is not some insane Twitter thought spewed by Trump after guzzling down gallons of Fox and Friends. It's open imperialism. And it's not just being embraced by powerful Republicans, but Democrats as well. Amid protests against Maduro, the head of the opposition party, Juan Guaido, declared himself president of Venezuela during a protest in late January, and he was immediately recognized by the United States. Now, Maduro rejected Guaido's claim, accused the U.S. of plotting a coup against him, and immediately ordered U.S. diplomats to leave Venezuela. Maduro later walked that back, but he does maintain the position that the U.S. should stay out of Venezuela. Donald Trump hunts up Venezuela. This push for regime change in Venezuela did not appear in a vacuum. The CIA has been plotting with so-called rebels in Venezuela from the early days of the Trump administration. Trump administration discussed a coup with rebel Venezuelan officers. American officials are telling The Times that the administration indeed held secret meetings with rebellious military officers to discuss plans to overthrow President Nicolas Maduro. Now, with the media focus on the shutdown, on Trump Russia, on Trump's atrocious wall plan, Venezuela regime change appears to have been put on the fast track. All across the so-called liberal media, The reporting and analysis on Venezuela these past weeks has been atrocious. Actually, it's been terrible for a very long time. And we should remember that the New York Times actually openly supported the 2002 coup against Hugo Chavez and his Bolivarian revolution. 
But in the wake of the recent Venezuelan elections, there's been a uniformity to the characterization of Venezuela's suffering and chaos as the sole fault of Nicolas Maduro. Almost never mentioned prominently is the fact that Venezuela has been systematically targeted by the United States and its allies and puppets in Latin America, or the impact that the sanctions have had, or the fact that there was an attempt to kill Maduro with a drone packed with explosives. Ha llegado la hora de la recuperación económica y The story is just Maduro is a corrupt dictator and he needs to be taken out. The central role that the U.S. has played under Bush and Cheney, under Obama, and now under Trump in destabilizing Venezuela, it's an afterthought if it's even mentioned at all. And it must be pointed out that this is not just the Trump administration pushing for regime change in Venezuela. Senate Minority Whip Dick Durbin, a powerful Democrat from Illinois, released a statement praising Trump for, quote, appropriately recognizing Guaido. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff said that Trump was right to recognize Guaido as president. And then there was this insane propaganda video released by some Democrats on the Foreign Relations Committee, including Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Elliot Engel, and former Clinton Health and Human Services Secretary Donna Shalala. They declared, quote, we refuse to recognize the legitimacy of Maduro's presidency. Maduro's administration held fraudulent elections and he has lost his mandate. We cannot allow Nicolas Maduro to destroy his country, to continue to steamroll democracy and to act with impunity. Now, if that's not cringeworthy enough, let's look at the man appointed to spearhead this bipartisan Venezuela regime change policy. Today, I am uh, incredibly excited to announce that a seasoned, principled, and tough-minded foreign policy veteran is joining our State Department team. Elliot Abrams is coming aboard to lead our efforts on Venezuela. Elliot Abrams is a notorious neoconservative, and he was actually a so-called never-Trumper who penned op-eds opposing Trump. Well, clearly a good old-fashioned coup d'etat mission was too juicy to pass up for Abrams. I left this building 30 years ago this week, last time I worked here. So it's um, very nice to be back. This uh, crisis in Venezuela is uh, deep and difficult and dangerous, and I can't wait to get to work on it. Thank you. Elliot Abrams is an unrepentant war criminal who played a central role in the mass slaughter of tens of thousands of people across Central and Latin America in the dirty wars of the 1980s. He was a player in the Iran-Contra scandal. But Abrams is an adult. Abrams is an old Latin America hand. It's sickening. They brought in Elliot Abrams because of his immorality and his willingness to support mass murder. It's the only reason that he's there, and no one with even a flimsy grasp on morality should be welcoming his appointment as special envoy on Venezuela. And let's remember that in 2002, during the Bush-Cheney administration, Abrams was a major proponent of the coup against Hugo Chavez. Now, back in 1995, on an episode of The Charlie Rose Show on PBS, investigative journalist Alan Nairn debated Abrams. Nairn had reported extensively from the killing fields of Central America, which Abrams played a key role in creating. It was an incredible moment as Nairn detailed Abrams' crimes 
and called for him to be put on trial. President Bush once talked about putting Saddam Hussein on trial for crimes against humanity, Nuremberg-style tribunal. I think that's a good idea. But if you're serious, you have to be even-handed. If we look at a case like this, I think we have to talk, start talking about putting Guatemalan and U.S. officials on trial. I think someone like Mr. Abrams would be a fit uh, a subject for such a Nuremberg-style <laughs> inquiry. But I agree with Mr. Abrams that Democrats would have to be in the dock with him. As Donald Trump has cozied up to strongmen and dictators across the world, from Vladimir Putin to Mohammed bin Salman, Rodrigo Duterte, Kim Jong-un, Sisi of Egypt... It seems that he's found one so-called strongman that he can't tolerate. And that leader happens to have the largest reserves of oil of any country in the world. Well, we're looking at Venezuela. It's a very sad situation. Uh, That was the richest state in all of that area. That's a big, beautiful area and by far the richest. And now it's uh, one of the poorest places in the world. That's what socialism gets you. We've heard this justification for intervention for coups, for war from the United States and its leaders throughout history. The U.S. needs to go free the people from their undemocratic leaders. It's all a huge rescue mission for the poor people who will be so happy when the United States comes in to liberate them. It's all a big lie. The Trump administration has imposed new sanctions against Venezuela's state-owned oil company. And the State Department says it's taking action to make sure that all of the money and other assets owned by Venezuela in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world would be handed over to the control of the U.S.-backed Guaido. Buried within a New York Times report on the sanctions was this tidbit. The sanctions included exceptions to allow the American oil company Chevron, along with Dick Cheney's former company Halliburton, to continue working in Venezuela. And that pretty much tells you everything you need to know about this situation. Muchas gracias. Y vayan con Dios. We're joined by the award-winning investigative journalist Alan Nairn, who's closely tracked Elliot Abrams' record for over three decades. Alan Nairn is two-time winner of the George Polk Award, a recipient of the Robert F. Kennedy Memorial Award for international reporting. Alan spoke with us earlier this week from Jakarta, Indonesia. He began by talking about the significance of the appointment of Elliot Abrams. What his appointment emphasizes, re-emphasizes, it was already obvious, was that the U.S. is trying to overthrow the government uh, of of Venezuela uh, and that it will be willing uh, to use violence, to use uh, military force uh, if necessary. Uh, That's what Abrams and indeed U.S. policy has has been all about. I think their first preference would be to have a successful uh, covert operation. Uh, Mike Pompeo, when he was in charge of the CIA, uh, all but stated it uh, publicly uh, at one point when he was speaking in, uh, uh, in Aspen at, 
at one of those uh, gatherings of the uh, uh, elite, uh, he, he gave the rough outlines of uh, uh, an operation in coord coordination with uh, U.S. allies like uh, Colombia to topple uh, the Maduro uh, government uh, in, in Venezuela. Uh, and now, just recently, the night before uh, Guaido uh, declared himself as the new president of Venezuela, uh, he was on the phone with Mike Pence directly. Uh, Pence was, uh, the Wall Street Journal broke the story. Pence was uh, uh, directly talking to him, and the next day he comes out and declares himself as the president of Venezuela. Uh, and now they're asking, uh, they're offering incentives to uh, Venezuelan army officers to come over uh, to their side uh, and hoping that the U.S. can reestablish control of Venezuela uh, in that manner. But if that fails, um, I think there is a, a chance uh, that the U.S. would consider uh, an invasion of, of uh, Venezuela. This would not be the first or even the second or third preference of the Pentagon or the CIA or the, or the State Department, but it might be very attractive to Donald Trump for several reasons. In 2016, during the campaign, uh, speaking of Iraq, Trump said, to the victor belong the spoils. Uh, you have to go in and take uh, the oil. Uh, you could call this a, a Trump doctrine. And Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves. Now, very often, oil is used as the explanation for the motive for U.S. invasions and foreign policy. And I think its role is usually way overblown. People give it too much weight in, in the analysis. But in this case, it might turn out to be very relevant, given that Trump has that doctrine and is now personally in power. Uh, secondly, uh, politically, Trump needs a new war. Uh, Trump has been uh, stuck with, for him, the being in the embarrassing position of just uh, being able to uh, continue the old uh, W. Bush and, uh, and Obama wars. There's a consensus among U.S. Uh, mainstream historians that no president can be great unless he has a war. Uh, they, they say this uh, all the time. And Trump now, of course, is in uh, some political uh, difficulty. So for him, uh, an action where the U.S. went into Venezuela in spectacular fashion, uh, did it quick in the style of the U.S. Uh, invasions of Grenada or, uh, or Panama. It didn't get bogged down, but just went in, say, for a few weeks, uh, killed without uh, restraint, which is the doctrine Trump is now applying to U.S. forces worldwide. I mean, he's basically told the CIA and the Pentagon, don't worry about uh, any constraints on civilian casualties that may have existed before, uh, do what you will. In fact, in Afghanistan, he celebrated the dropping of what was called the mother of all bombs, this, this massive uh, explosive, which is the, the closest uh, conventional explosive that you can get to a nuclear weapon. This was dropped in a mountainous region of Af Afghanistan, and, and tr Trump was crowing about it afterwards. So a, sh a quick invasion with massive force that succeeds in toppling uh, the Maduro government, and then where the U.S. gets out uh, quickly, is the kind of thing that could, in theory, be att attractive to Trump. And it's also the kind of thing that I guarantee you would be praised to the heavens on CNN and on MSNBC. Uh, and uh, this would be uh, a sweet political victory uh, for Trump. Now, it, uh, whether it's actually possible 
to pull off a quick, successful military invasion of uh, Venezuela is entirely a different question, because uh, it would face major resistance, uh, even if you know some of the army had already switched sides uh, to the uh, U.S. side. There would be a lot of people who would want to resist it. But it is the case that the reality in Venezuela today is very different than it has been uh, during the during earlier years of the the Bolivarian movement in uh, in Venezuela. The U.S. has always, and this is an important point for understanding the U.S. context. The U.S. doesn't care at all about elections. They don't care at all about uh, the poor. Completely fake elections are fine with them. Uh, the U.S. just, uh, you know, not, not long ago finished ratifying a, a fraudulent election in uh, Honduras where Hernandez imposed himself for re-election. Uh, and he did that with the assistance of uh, Mike Pence and, uh, and others. They don't care about the poor. Uh, they targeted Hugo Chavez and the Bolivarian movement from the uh, beginning. In 2002, even though Chavez had not long before been re-elected in a clean vote, a completely clean vote, for years, uh, the Carter Center and other international monitors who went to Venezuela uh, was reporting uh, that their electoral system was uh, in that era, uh, they did a clean count, they were not rigged elections. Uh, despite that, despite the fact that the Chavez administration was making great strides in uh, raising living standards for the poor, uh, starting to lower the levels of malnutrition, starting to raise the levels of general health, um, or maybe because of that, uh, the U.S. in 2002 uh, Move, backed uh, a coup against Chavez that briefly removed him but was ultimately unsuccessful because the population uh, and much of the security forces rallied to Chavez's side and they thwarted uh, the U.S. effort to oust him. Today, it's a different uh, situation. Uh, uh, the U.S. has been trying to undermine the Venezuelan uh, government ever since the Chavez years, as has the uh, Venezuelan oligarchy. Uh, in fact, uh, not long after the, uh, the brief failed uh, coup, which was backed by the U.S., the rich of uh, Venezuela, the business owners, went on a capital strike. Uh, they purposely shut down their businesses, and it had huge impact. They succeeded in shaving something like 27% off the gross domestic product of Venezuela, which is just astonishing, uh, uh, catastrophic in a short time. But even that failed to uh, topple Chavez. But in the conditions we have today where Maduro uh, does not have near the popular support that Chavez did, where he's really been running the country into the ground and has been using the fact that the U.S. is trying to undermine uh, the government uh, as a universal excuse for everything, for his own incompetence and corruption uh, and uh, brutality against protesters in the streets. Uh, uh, this government, the Maduro government, is in a rather uh, a weak position. And it appears that the population is now becoming rather uh, divided. Uh, for years, the opposition in Venezuela was uh, kind of a, a classical rightist Latin American uh, force with uh, the rich, the very rich, the oligarchs, uh, the business, top business people aligned with many sectors of, uh, of the middle class. But now it seems that opposition is spread, and there, there are many poor people 
who are part of it. Um, uh, so this means uh, this Maduro government is rather weak and is vulnerable uh, to being toppled. It is possible. It's not impossible uh, as it was in previous years uh, un under uh, Chavez. But, and this is important to note, even though much of the U.S. news coverage and many of the U.S. analysts note the fact uh, that a lot of poor people are now joining and going into the streets protesting against Maduro, there is absolutely no way that the U.S. will allow uh, a poor people's movement. Let's say if uh, a new uh, political, if there Imagine if such a thing came into being, a poor people's movement in Venezuela that did want to oust Maduro but replace it with a new uh, policy of, uh, that, that was also pro-poor and sought to uh, uh, gain justice. Uh, there's no way the U.S. would, would tolerate that. Uh, the U.S. will insist that a new opposition that comes to power be controlled by the far-right uh, uh, elements who represent uh, the very rich and are who willing to take uh, instructions from Washington, as was clearly uh, illustrated in the case of Pence and the, the newly uh, proclaimed uh, president of, uh, self-proclaimed president of, of, of Venezuela. So uh, it's a very dangerous situation right now. And I think what the proper role for the U.S. Uh, at this moment uh, is, one, to uh, lift the sanctions, lift the stranglehold uh, that is currently uh, increasing the level of hunger. There's a, there's a level of misery in Venezuela that was already caused by the incompetence of this uh, government. But the U.S. has done everything it can to increase it. Just in the past few days, for example, uh, the U.S. has been moving legally uh, to block the Venezuelan government from using uh, $1.2 billion worth of gold, which it has uh, stored in uh, uh, London. Uh, and by, and, and he, they're, in doing this, they're being backed by uh, the, the, the opposition by uh, Guaido, uh, and this will mean less money available in Venezuela to buy basic uh, provisions, basic uh, supplies, food, uh, medicine, uh, etc. So lift first, uh, lift the stranglehold, uh, and secondly, disavow uh, the invasion uh, option, and then step back. You know some. People in the, the Democratic Party, for example, in the United States, float the idea of the U.S. trying to facilitate, be the mediator in finding a political solution for Venezuela. Uh, but that's not appropriate. The, the U.S. has no standing to be uh, a, a mediator, a disinterested third party. The U.S. is on one side. They're on the side uh, of the right and the, the rich in Venezuela who are trying to topple this government. Uh, and the U.S. is trying to overthrow the government. They can't be a mediator. It's somewhat comparable to Israel-Palestine, where for years the U.S. has claimed to be an honest broker between Israel and the Palestinians, when in fact, everyone knows, it's self-proclaimed, the U.S. is on the side of the Israelis and against the aspirations of the Palestinians to have their legal rights under international law enforced and uh, to regain their political uh, sovereignty. Uh, and yet they claim to be a mediator. So the U.S. should not try to insert itself and claim to be a political mediator in Venezuela uh, either. For that, you'd need an outside party that has some credibility. Maybe, you know, a figure like the Pope or uh, some outside uh, 
countries who could play that role. A couple of years ago, the Pope was involved in such an effort, but he received no backing uh, from the U.S. at the time because they don't really want a political solution that leads to a truly open political field where all options are available, where perhaps, uh, you know, maybe a different uh, government, but one that is pro-poor and anti-U.S. Uh, could gain power. You know, if you had a genuinely open political process in, in Venezuela, a political outcome like that is certainly not inconceivable, but the U.S. would never tolerate that. So they have, they're, they're now trying to engineer a way uh, for the U.S. to regain uh, control, and to do that, uh, they'll be willing to use violence uh, as necessary, if necessary. Uh, and for that, Abrams is the perfect man for the job. It seems to me that this is, it is such a fundamental principle of international law and of the, uh, goes to the very uh, core of why there is a United Nations, that it's really something that some, the Canada and some of these European countries that try to pretend they, they are believers in international law um, are, are going along with this. I, under, I can kind of understand the right-wing governments of Latin America that are supporting this in Brazil and some of the other countries. Although, what a joke. That, that they consider the Brazilian elections legitimate. I mean, you have a parliamentary coup against the Brazilian president, and then you have an election where the main opponent to Balacero is sitting in jail. Lula is sitting in jail. They won't let him run. And those elections are considered okay by the Trump administration. Anyway, well, let's, go, let's go back and look at Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in Honduras. In, in my estimation, the Honduran recent Honduran exchange of governments was unconstitutional, unethical, immoral, and illegal. And yet the United States jumped right on top of it to recognize the new, more conservative Honduran president. Uh, and I've been in Honduras, I've been in Tegucigalpa, and I know the kind of person that we recognize. So this is something we do. If it's in our interest, we do it. If it's not in our interest, we don't do it. That's the simple formula that we use. The difference with the Trump administration is you never know when that formula is going to be applied or how it's going to be applied. And I would suspect that one of the reasons you got such instant agreement, if you will, from countries like France, like Germany, like Canada, is because Trump has frightened them. He's frightened them with his approach to NATO. He's frightened them with his trade wars and so forth. And so on this particular issue where they really don't have a dog in the fight, not up close and personal anyway, they're not going to turn against Trump. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. I interviewed a Canadian general uh, during the early stages of uh, the invasion, uh, sending troops to Afghanistan. And uh, I asked him, why did we send troops to Afghanistan? Uh, the, the lots of the opinion at the time after 9-11 was that the uh, this could have been more of a police style operation in Afghanistan, the, going after the Al Qaeda, the Taliban. It didn't need to be a full scale mil military invasion with so many countries involved. Uh, it wasn't a proportional or even to a large extent legal response. And he told me it's very simple why Canada sent troops to Afghanistan. We send he says, we send troops to Afghanistan because we need to pay in blood 
to send our goods across the border into the United States. That if we want this same kind of this easy trader relationship with the U.S., we have to take up some of the burden of military operations. And, and, and he didn't use the word empire, but that's what it came down to. We have to play our role in the world. And, and Venezuela, I think, is a very good example of this. And it wasn't just now that Canada play, has played this role. Canada's been playing this role in Venezuela from around the time of the coup in 2002. Yep, that's empire. That's the lessons of empire throughout history, whether it's Athens dealing with Corinth and Milos and others in her empire, or whether it's Britain dealing with, uh, say, the subcontinent in her empire. Uh, you demand obeisance, and obeisance is given so that uh, your people can have some sort of stability and prosperity until you get rid of the empire. And I think it's important just to add to your point about Honduras and Obama and Clinton that some of the, several of the leaders of the Democratic Party, including Nancy Pelosi, have actually endorsed Trump's strategy. Uh, no, this is a bipartisan issue. I think I told you the other day I came out of a room that had a bipartisan national security elite group debating things. And one of the things debating the future and all manner of issues, everything from whether or not we should plus up states 150 account, the international relations account, to how we should go after the defense budget and so forth. I came out of that with the distinct impression that everyone there, Democrat and Republican, had decided that perpetual war is the concomitant of empire. Put in plain English, war, interminable war, is this empire's debt to the future. We've just heard clips today, starting with the real news, explaining that there was actually a reason Venezuela elected Chavez in the first place. The inquiry explained that Venezuela's dangerous financial path started decades before the Bolivarian Revolution. Revolutionary Left Radio pointed out a few of the good things the social programs helped provide to the Venezuelan people in the early days of the Chavez presidency. The Majority Report explained the combined effects of dysfunctional internal economic policies and a kind of economic warfare waged on Venezuela from the outside. Ring of Fire Radio explained why Maduro continued with failing policies. This is Hell spoke with Jorge Martin about the middle path taken by the Maduro administration helping lay the groundwork for takeover by right-wing moneyed interests. The Intercept laid out the American plot to overthrow Venezuela's government. Democracy Now! spoke with journalist Alan Nairn about several aspects of U.S. involvement with Venezuela, including Trump's desire for war. And finally, we just heard The Real News speaking with Larry Wilkerson about how America bullies allied countries into joining our imperialistic escapades and how we ourselves are addicted to war. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips. There is a fantastic supercut of a debate that happened in the UN highlighting all of the countries denouncing the United States' obviously illegal actions and promoting simple concepts like self-determination and national sovereignty, you know, things we pretend to believe in when it suits us. I absolutely hated that I couldn't fit into the main show, so the members would get that, plus another giving more detail on the history of uh, U.S. committing war crimes and no one being held accountable. 
to hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. Now, I don't have any voicemails today because I have a couple different things I want to talk about. The first of which is something that I came across during my research for today's show, and it was just mentioned offhandedly. I couldn't find a good clip that really dug into it, so I'm just going to dig into it for you. And and that is, uh, I I don't know if Noam Chomsky originated this, but he is certainly a, a promoter of the concept, and I had never heard of this before, but uh, the threat of the good example and I, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, historians or old school uh, lefties will be familiar with this concept. I wasn't. I'm guessing a lot of people uh, also are not. And, and it's probably something that we could all benefit from having refreshed. So Noam Chomsky wrote an article about the threat of a good example. And frankly, I'm, I'm going to uh, read from it liberally and and talk about it as we go, maybe. So um, just to get started, he writes, this is from in the middle of the article, he says, the weaker and poorer a country is, the more dangerous it is as an example. If a tiny, poor country like Granada can succeed in bringing about a better life for its people, some other place that has more resources will ask, why not us? This was even true in Indochina, which is pretty big and has some significant resources. Although Eisenhower and his advisors ranted a lot about the rice and tin and rubber, the real fear was that if the people of Indochina achieved independence and justice, the people of Thailand would emulate it. And if that worked, they'd try it in Malaya. And pretty soon, Indonesia would pursue an independent path, and by then, a significant area of the grand area would have been lost. If you want a global system that's subordinated to the needs of U.S. investors, this might sound familiar, you can't let pieces of it wander off. U.S. planners from Secretary of State Dean Acheson in the late 1940s to the present have warned that, quote, one rotten apple can spoil the barrel, unquote. The danger is that the rot, social and economic development, may spread. This rotten apple theory is called the domino theory for public consumption. And to pause, this is why I'm talking to you about this. I, I, I've gone through this evolution in my thinking about the domino theory. As a kid, I obviously didn't understand what it meant. I, you know, I knew what a domino was, so I had that simplistic understanding. At no point from childhood to adulthood did I ever understand why would one country next to another country, if they adopted a different uh, governing system, why would then their neighbor also do the same thing? My only theory was, does that mean that the communists would invade their neighbors and take them over? I never heard anyone say that. That didn't seem to be the argument people were making. But I couldn't think of any other reason for it. And and what I'm realizing now is that, you know, I've been propagandized just as much as anyone uh, about the absolute, the evils and, and the horrors of communism and how it is just flat out terrible in every way. And so I thought, 
why would one country adopting a system that doesn't work make anyone else do that same thing? Like, what's the logic behind it? And what this is helping me realize is that the fear is not that a horrible system will be implemented that doesn't work. The fear is that it will work. And not that I'm saying that communism itself as practiced in real life has been great. And, you know, it obviously has lots of downsides, but really experimentation with any kind of governmental system that is anywhere in the range of socialism or communism that that has a, a strong focus on providing for the needs of a country's people prioritized above free trade and capitalism and, and all of that. That's what's the real danger. Okay, so continuing, the, the, the rotten apple theory is called the domino theory for public consumption. Maybe some U.S. leaders believe this nonsense. It's possible. But rational planners certainly don't. They understand that the real threat is the good example. Sometimes, the point is explained with great clarity when the U.S. was planning to overthrow Guatemalan democracy in 1954. A State Department official pointed out that, quote, Guatemala has been an increasing threat to the stability of Honduras and El Salvador. Its agrarian reform is a powerful propaganda weapon. Its broad social program of aiding the workers and peasants in a victorious struggle against the upper classes and large foreign enterprises has a strong appeal to the populations of Central American neighbors where similar conditions prevail, unquote. In other words, what the U.S. wants is, quote-unquote, stability, meaning security for the, quote, upper classes and large foreign enterprises, unquote. If that can be achieved with formal democratic devices, okay. If not, the threat to stability posed by a good example has to be destroyed before the virus infects others. That's why even the tiniest speck poses such a threat and may have to be crushed. So that's the end of the article. And, and hearing that, so that article is decades old. And um, hearing that, coming across that concept is in relation to Venezuela, it makes it so clear. I mean, so many different aspects of this have, have become clear, and the through line becomes so much more understandable if you understand it in hard-nosed, uh, whatever benefits America, screw democracy, screw the UN sort of mentality, like it all becomes clear and, and and all of the all the moves we make all the propaganda we put out um start starts to make sense and and this really added to that going you know back at least as far as as korea and vietnam to 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 understand that obviously they're not worried about the freedom of the people we keep going and invading and they're not in afraid, you know, they're not just afraid, like ideologically, of a country having a different system of government than ours. If it stayed that way, that shouldn't be a problem for the U.S. The problem is if other countries decide they want to implement different policies that are better for people and worse for the rich and corporations, 
then that hurts global capitalism writ large. It, you know, the people might be better off, but the rich and the businesses, you know, development may slow. And so they see any government running astray, uh, doing anything other than laissez-faire capitalism as, as a threat to that perpetual growth machine. Now, un- unfortunately, I, th- I thought I had a couple of things to talk about. Uh, I'm running a, l- a little longer than I intended, so I'm going to save that for the next show. Uh, so we'll leave it there. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 if you have comments on this or anything else, of course. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.